Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, it is author, businessman, business manager, C.K. Lent, or Christopher Lent. He, of course, wrote the great Kiss book, Kiss and Sell, The Making of a Supergroup. Came out in 1997, by the way, and still, still 13 years later, it, uh, 13 years, 23 years later, it is still the best uh, book about the band. Uh, and on that, uh, bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? Bonjour, Monsieur. Ça va? Ça va très, très bien. Now, I'm sure when we're talking business managers and accountants, you've got absolutely nothing to say because I'm sure with great white and guns and roses, it was all, well, roses. And so there's nothing to add to this conversation. So should we get... No. We won't get right over to C.K. Lent. Uh, talk to me a little bit about business management. What, what was that like with with your bands? You were the manager. Did you have a business manager, a, a an entity on the outside that oversaw all your finances? Yes, and they were called Siegel and Feldstein. And engaging a business manager was um, an imperative to me. First and foremost, I did not want to handle any of the band money. And I wanted an accountant to handle all the money. And the reason I wanted to do that was to be in a position where I was totally, completely, and utterly above reproach, that there would never be a question about my integrity and propriety. And since business management was there, that was their primary function for me. Uh, secondly, they were useful because as a greenhorn, wet behind the ears, know-nothing manager, it was useful to have somebody I could pick the phone up to and go, where the fuck do I get a tour manager from? Or tour buses, where do I find those? All right. Here's somebody who's dealing with tour managers who account for them on a weekly basis and obviously tour buses and so on and so forth, and could help you with that kind of information. If you had a good business manager, they might be able to supply useful information in other ways. Um, all that said, and inherently, I'm saying to a, a business manager is an essential, I'd also say that utilizing the Reaganism of trust but verify is generous i would say don't trust and double verify um we're all human and i think humans who handle money um are prone to temptation and you know a little bit here a little bit there you know we get we get you insurances for you and we get a little bit of a kickback here or we recommend, you know, this company to you and we get a little bit of a kickback here. Um, that definitely goes on and it definitely starts. And then you see headlines like uh, Lisa Marie Presley, who claims that her accountants have... Um, availed themselves of tens of millions of dollars. Um, and of course, they come back and say, Lisa Marie is crazy and she spent it all on handbags. And of course, you know, probably both things are true in some way. But business managers, yes, you need them. Um, 
Well, trust but verify. Trust but verify. So I'm going to ask you this because I was talking to Chris about branding. And he said, Mitch, it was the 1970s. Branding didn't exist. We had exploit. We, ex- you know, how to exploit your band, how to exploit the property. Uh, your band, business managers with Guns N' Roses, did you sit down with them and say, okay, we're going to do this tour. We're going to call it this. We're going to market that. Were, were they really proactive in deciding the names of albums and bands and what the poster is going to look like? And then... And the they had tr- nothing to do with that at all. They they were they, they were there to uh, um, collect funds, distribute funds, um, collect your ASCAP, chase the record company for your royalty payments, so on and so forth. Um, no creative input whatsoever. And I find it interesting that the statement is there was no such thing as branding. Of course, it was branding, but just nobody. Had, cottoned on to overusing that word in an obnoxious way, which is, um, you know, so prevalent and has been so prevalent. And especially consider we're coming out of a period of time where selling out was something distasteful and even evil. Um, you know, the idea of, uh, of having an underarm stick connected to your tour poster was an anathema. It was a compromise, the mystique of artistry and creativity. Um, you, you know, and obviously Gene Simmons turned that on its head and said, wherever I can make a buck, I'm going to make a buck. Um, not everybody was of that ilk. And from my responsibility, yes, lots of people would come and say, we want to do this, we want to do that, we want to do something else. And I turned a lot of things down because I thought it cheapened the perception of the band. And at the end of the day, my responsibility was to maintain as much power and mystique in the image of the band as I could. So no, I don't want Guns N' Roses tampons. I blame you for not having a GNR lunchbox. That's your fault. That is your fault. Uh, but, Absolutely. Uh, the, the other thing that, that we talk about with Chris is how the band, you know, they came in and the money was in disarray. And so they started getting the band into real estate, into other investments and so on and so forth. Was that something that was the responsibility of your business managers or did Slash go invest in his own thing and and Duff have his own guy who invested? Was there a, a financial plan where you say, okay, guys, we've made this much money. And to avoid this much tax, you need to go buy property in Cleveland. Uh, was it? Were they that involved, or were they more like, mm, "Here's your twenty thousand dollars, slash, go do whatever you want with it"? I was told by Rich Feldstein that I couldn't consider myself in a position to be a proper investor until I had at least five million dollars uh, available just for investment. Um, so, no, we we weren't quite at that position. Um, on the other hand. Um, part of caring for people is trying to help them through the influx of money and the impact of that in some sensible way at the same time as you're trying to deal with it for yourself because you know we all we all came from the streets and being able to go and buy a car cash what a concept. Um, but speaking for myself, 
investment was something that I didn't know much about, so I was suspicious of. But there were two things that I went, listen, guys, here's what I'd recommend. Now you bought your big car and you can drive up and down Sunset and show off that you've sold a few records. Now look for a house and pay it off as fast as possible. My rule was don't buy anything that you can't completely pay for if you can avoid it. With a house, that was a bit of a stretch, but you know the GNR guys could do that. They could go and buy a house. Uh, the first property that uh, the great white guys had were four condominiums in the same block that I took them to and got them to invest in. And they could own their own homes. It was whatever you want, make sure you can pay for it. The other thing was, um, I thought certificates of deposit were worthwhile. And the beauty of a certificate of deposit is that I could turn around to someone like Stephen Adler and say, Stephen, you cannot cash in the CD until it matures. Because if you do, you're going to lose everything. And he'd believe me. Whereas in point of fact, you just lose the um, the accrued interest. interest, right? The accrued interest, <laughs> and in that way, I could hornswoggle him into believing that once he had committed to putting money into a certificate of deposit, that money was totally untouchable, which was the consciousness I wanted him to have. Of course, it meant that you know, by the time he wanted to file a frivolous fucking lawsuit claiming that we made him take heroin, he had a million dollars in cash, and could have. And those lawyers were going. Wow, honeypot, let's dig in. You know, let's keep this case rolling for as long as possible. Um, you know, but those are the breaks, aren't they? Yeah, those are the breaks. And the, uh, the the KISS guys ended up suing Glickman and Marx, and that was a whole different thing. We don't get into that because we, we covered basically 76 to 82. We're going to do a part two where we'll cover the 80s. But let's be fair, I think a lot of fans are more interested in what happened in 79, 80, 81 than, uh, you know, necessarily in 1986. But uh, just real quickly, you mentioned the Guns N' Roses guys. Uh, did they all have enough money to go buy their first home or, or was that, you know, something down? Or did they all say, wow, I've got $5 million in the bank. I'm going to go buy a $15 million home and we'll pay it with royalties But in 10 years from now. Were, were they responsible? I mean, all things considered. No, they weren't that stupid and they were smarter and they, and they were being influenced into being smart, which was, as I, let, let me repeat it. If you're going to go and buy something, preferably pay for it completely. Don't get it on the never, 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 because you may never, never be able to pay for it later if things go south or sour or somebody uses the band or two people get killed in a car crash. Play it safe buy what you can afford. And that's what they did. They bought what they could afford at the time, which was just sensible. It's what I did. I bought what I could afford at the time. Which is uh, incredibly smart. So let us go over and listen to a Christopher Lent. The book is Kiss it's and not, it, it's, it's not incredibly smart. It's common sense. Well, of course, but common sense is generally incredibly smart. And unfortunately, too many of us don't use the common sense. It's right there in front of us, but... Uh, uh, let's get over to, to uh, Christopher Lent, Kiss and Sell, The Making of a Supergroup. The book came out in 1997. You can still get it. It's it's on eBay and Amazon and all that. It's the greatest read in terms of understanding the inner workings of Kiss. Uh, and on that, here is uh, the one, the only, Christopher. We are speaking to uh, author Chris 
Lent. He, of course, wrote the book Kiss and Sell, The Making of a Supergroup, that came out back in 1997. And Chris, I've got to say, and I've said it to you off air, it is by far the best book on the band ever written. It is just so compelling to read the nitty gritty and the detail and, and you know, how they acquired land and, and, and just it, it was fascinating. So uh, as we say in Montreal, bonjour. Well, thank you, Mitch. Uh, it was uh, uh, a tremendous uh, effort to write the book, but uh, I wanted to bring the story alive to the readers and include as much detail as possible so they really knew what happened during the time that I was uh, lucky enough to work with KISS. Yeah, and it was a fascinating story. Now, just real quick, have you since then updated the story at all? Uh, no, I have not. Uh, I have given many, many interviews, television, radio, print, uh, online, and so forth, but uh, I have never had uh, uh, a compelling desire of my own to do an update or a revision. So so let me ask you this, because uh, the book covers the time that Glickman Marx and, and yourself were involved with, with the band. Uh, you, of course, start with Glickman back in June of 1976, and of course, Kiss at that time are very much in the throes of super popularity in the United States. They're, they're still with Bill O'Coin. When did Glickman and, and yourself get approached by Kiss, or when did you approach Kiss, and, and how did that sort of transition away from Bill O'Coin actually happen? Well, Glickman Marks Management came into existence a few months before I joined the company in 1976. Uh, and to make a long story short, uh, uh, Glickman was a real estate financier in Cleveland, and Howard Marks was an advertising executive who owned his own agency in New York. They were longtime friends. Uh, there was a need at that time in early 76 for Kiss to get some outside financial advice. So, because Howard Marks already had a connection with Bill O'Coin and the band, uh, he stepped in and brought in his partner, Carl Glickman, and that's how the company started. I came into the picture in June of 76. They wanted a young guy to go out on the road and sort of be the liaison between uh, this new business management company and the band and learn the ropes and come back with recommendations uh, as to how their uh, financial uh, situation could could be improved. We remained on scene throughout the late 70s and early 1980s as strictly the business and financial managers. Bill O'Coin was obviously the manager at that time. By 81, 82, after the failure of the elder and uh, um, Peter Chris leaving the group, Bill's fortunes were on the decline because Kiss was on the decline. Kiss lost confidence in Bill uh, around that time also because Bill had a tremendous problem with substance abuse that was, was growing worse rather than uh, getting better. So as a result of Kiss losing confidence in, in Bill and Bill's empire having collapsed, having taken on many other bands that were flops, and he had his own financial problems and he had his own substance abuse problems, and Kiss had clearly their own problems with popularity as a result of uh, the elder, uh, they fired Bill. And we stepped, we stepped in to a second role, which was really not to be Kiss's creative manager, because we, we were not, but to take over all the administrative duties of management 
that Bill had performed where Paul and Gene would be the managers of the band on the creative and artistic level. So that's that's how it happened uh, uh, back in the early 80s. Back in the early 80s. So when you get brought in uh, at the end of the 70s as business managers, do you look at a band like Kiss that, that has you know massive tours and all kinds of appeal and you go, man, this is going to be fantastic. And, and are you shocked by the state of affairs? I mean, what was it a shocking state of affairs in terms of, wow, they're not as financially secure as we thought they would be? Or, you know, what was that first reaction when you when you open the books and you look at it and you go, ah, aha, you know, well, what's, what's going on here? What, what happened was very much along those lines. Uh, we were uh, shocked at how little money KISS had and how some of the money had been mismanaged or, or siphoned off or paying too much money in, in, in commissions and expenses and so forth. So the band had very little to show for themselves. So that was certainly uh, a, a shock that, that we had to figure out how to uh, get past. Uh, at the same time, KISS was make, starting to make a tremendous amount of money. So the bad news was they didn't have much money to show for the first three or four years they had been together, which is not unusual, and a lot of the money was being misspent or overspent on, on many things. But at the same time, the good news was uh, they were becoming enormously popular, and their popularity was uh, accelerating. And if we could renegotiate some deals and uh, cut some people out of the picture and uh, cut other people down in terms of what they were getting paid, uh, we could turn the situation around, which is what we started to do in the late 70s. Was it just a, a question of sort of trimming some of the fat, or did you now start have to looking into you know, getting him into land deals, getting him into outside music business ventures. Because, you know, now in, in 2020, Kiss, that they have the rock and brews and they have, the, you know, they, they have all kinds of outside uh, music ventures. Yes. Was that something that you said to them, hey, you know what, this is great, but we, we got to do something with this money. We got to make you more money. Because when I read in the book that they had land deals in Ohio or wherever it was, I was like, Oh wow, that's that's interesting because you you don't think of of rock stars or rock bands. You think of they stand on a stage and they sing a song. You don't always think about all the other stuff that goes into it. The a mission that we had uh, in the late seventies, by nineteen seventy eight, when they were really starting to peak and a, a very substantial amount of money was coming in, was we, was we had to find places to put the money uh, that would be investments for the future which is one of the reasons Carl Glickman, Howard Marks' partner, came in, because he was an expert on real estate, and uh, he identified a few properties uh, that would be suitable for KISS to invest in, which had, at that time, tremendous tax benefits, because the tax, reg uh, the tax regime back in the late 1970s was quite, is quite different than the way it is today. You could legally shelter large sums of money to offset... Uh, paying large sums in taxes. It was all totally legitimate, but the, but it, it, after the 70s were over, the, the rules changed, uh, and a lot of those uh, investments opportunities were no longer available. So we had to find uh, ways to, to uh, invest KISS's monies, because if we just put them in the bank, <laughs> the bank... Well, would have uh, 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 they would have just been sitting there for for taxes to be paid, and at that time, taxes were were very very high, way 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 over fifty percent. So, with many artists, 
the function of a business manager is how do you save me money on taxes? They may not talk about that in interviews, but when you sit down with them in private in a business meeting, I would tell you that virtually every artist uh, on the planet, the first question they're going to ask a business manager or, or an accountant is, how do I save money on taxes to pay as little as possible legitimately? Yeah. But by the way, let me, let me just ask you that uh, in, the, in the general context of tax, is there a, a point where we, we sort of have to stop playing this sort of shell game and sheltering and hiding stuff and just say, why don't we just have a flat tax? Everybody pays 20 percent and off we, we, we Is there a solution to that or, or is this sort of shell game just the way it is and the way it's always going to be? Well, I, I agree with uh, half of the premise of your question that the, the, the shell game uh, is uh, really a fool's errand because a lot of these so-called tax shelters really don't exist anymore in the United States. I mean, whatever I wrote about in the book is uh, being the way of the world in the late 70s and the early 80s uh, or through the late 80s, uh, that, that, that's past history. So there really are in the United States very few of these so-called tax shelters where you put money into investment in order to take money off of your income tax liability. So that part is out. The flat tax, the fair tax, uh, this has been endlessly debated, but you know it's a question of whose ox is being gored. Uh, is, is a flat tax uh, a fair for a person uh, in the same way who makes an eight-figure income as it is for a person who makes a five-figure income, because that 20% of a person who makes the five-figure income, that's a much bigger uh, chunk of their uh, discretionary and uh, a living income than it is for a person who has uh, an eight-figure income. So uh, there's a lot of uh, merit to, to that argument, but nobody has really agreed on what the magic number is, at least not in the United States. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it'll be uh, eternally debated. Uh, let me get, get over to the dynasty tour. First of all, how involved was the business manager or the business managers in the dynasty tour? Because the band has this new album, they come out. They, they want to do all kinds of stage design and lasers and, and, and make it this big, spectacular thing. How much impact do you have on the vision of the show when you say, hey, wait a minute, we don't have $3 million to, de to, to develop a laser light show, so calm yourselves. Um, was Glickman Marks very much involved in that staging? And, and are you involved in sort of those productions where you go, hey, yeah, you can't afford that, so think well, again. There's no question that we were very much involved. We were uh, in every, virtually every meeting where those decisions were made, and not just Glickman Marks, but uh, the band and Bill O'Coin and key people like myself and uh, other people at, at Bill's company. Yes, we were all involved. Yes, we all spoke up. Yes, we gave our advice. But uh, who has the ultimate say? Uh, the band. And the band at that time was very much swayed by Bill O'Coin, who had his own uh, artistic uh, priorities. Uh, and the band at that time was very much um, uh, propelled by the idea that they were not simply a regular band anymore. They were this super group, and, and they were uh, going to be in this pantheon of uh, uh, superstar uh, rock artists for all time. And, of course, they had to have a show uh, that validated that. So 
uh, you can be a very good manager or business manager and give all the right advice financially, but that doesn't mean that you have the final say. We, at the end of the day, we're advisors, uh, not deciders. Right. So, okay. So, in terms of of advisors, though, when you see the band come out with the Dynasty album and the, the new look and the, those sort of flashier green and, and blue, right. you know, costumes and all that. Were you at all uh, perturbed or or going? Hey, wait a minute! You're you're a leather and and sweat and fist pumping metal band, you know, hard rock band, I guess. And now you're 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 sort of doing the disco song. Was that something where you thought, uh oh, this is not going to work? Were you concerned? Not not at that time, no. And and I'll tell you why. Uh, there was a natural evolution of Kiss with the imaging and the costumes that was guided by Bill O'Coin, who did a brilliant job. And they they started out in this kind of uh, leather look in the club days, and of course with more money and more imagination and more sophistication, it it became closer to what you saw in say the Dyna, uh, the uh, Destroyer era. It was a, 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 a much more flamboyant, uh, much more developed look, but it was consistent with with Kiss had, and then it took another almost quantum leap uh, to the look that you you uh, 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 refer to in, in in Dynasty. It was a little bit yes, I agree. It was at that point noticeably a bit more Hollywoody. It was a bit over flamboyant. It was a little bit more uh, uh, Liberace. Uh, than than perhaps uh, leather, uh, and that was something again that the band was enthusiastic about doing because they felt that was the next step, uh, that that they would be even uh, more outrageous in a very showy, bombastic, uh, showbiz kind of way. And again, that was guided by 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 Bill O'Coin. So I don't think at that time people were 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 too concerned about it being the death knell because. This is the way the band saw themselves, and 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 Bill O'Coin was uh, guiding them, and he, they had been right all all along up to that point. So, why would you doubt them? But you are correct that it was noticeably uh, taking the the flamboyance to another level, uh, where it looked uh, a, a bit gaudier than it had in the previous couple of years. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the interesting things that's mentioned in the book is that you say that in the 80s they, they started to, um, well, I don't want to say copy, but emulate Bon Jovi and Van Halen and some of these other bands. But uh, if you look back to 1979 and doing a disco song in the flamboyant outfits, you know, coming on the heels of Earth, Wind, and Fire and Casey and the Sun, you go, hmm, were, were they sort of imitating them too? I mean, had they stopped being leaders at that point? Uh, the the disco song "I Was Made for Loving You" turned out to be a a very successful worldwide hit. Uh, in fact, that that song in certain European countries gave the band a level of of notoriety and success that they had not had before. So uh, so critics and fans can can uh, can argue well was that really the best of Kiss or really was that entirely consistent with with their their previous music uh that's in the eye of the of the of the listener 
or they have the beholder. Uh, but at the same time, it it was a big success. In the same, uh, like Beth was a huge success in the United States. What what did Beth have to do with most Kiss music up to that point? Very little. But it got on the radio. It got them notoriety. Uh, it got them heard. It got them a number of of, of awards and 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 commendations, uh, and it elevated their popularity. So it's a two-edged sword. It maybe was a disco song, and maybe it was conceived for very crass commercial purposes, which is probably true, but it was successful, particularly in other countries, to get the band to the next level in those countries where they really weren't all that well-known at that time. Let me ask you about the about again again about the Dynasty tour. It was the first show I ever saw in my life, August sixth, nineteen seventy nine, in Montreal. And here we are, you know, forty whatever years later, forty one years later. Huge fan, huge rock man, rock journalist, the whole thing. And and it was that show that set me off. Um, for us who who saw it and, and who are fans, it was the greatest moment in our lives. But for the band, you you look back now and you hear stories about it wasn't selling so well. It was bankrupting the band. It was it was causing uh, all kinds of problems with Peter. How was the atmosphere around that tour? And and financially, was it a viable tour or was it barely holding on? Uh, financially, the tour was not a success because the houses were not full. Uh, there were a number of shows, uh, uh, cities where we expected to play multiple dates, in, in, including Madison Square Garden, and was cut back from three to two or two to one, uh, also true in other cities. So that was certainly a telltale sign that the, 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 the tour wasn't doing well. The cost of doing that tour was staggering at the time. Uh, the lasers basically didn't work. Uh, and that was hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, down the drain. Uh, I don't can't even recall a show where where the lasers uh, did work, <laughs> except in a rehearsal. <clears throat> you also had the, the 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 a massive amount of people that were required to uh, put up the show, and those uh, people were very well paid, and there was too many of them, but the show uh, couldn't uh, continue if we didn't have all those trucks and all those people and all those uh, accessories. What did happen in the course of the Dynasty Tour is there was a uh, a stripped-down version of the Dynasty Tour called the B-Show. In other words, certain venues in certain cities, the largest cities, they would get the A-Show, which was all of the lights... <coughs> Maybe the lasers, if you were lucky, all of the sound, all of the pyro, all of the staging, all of the everything. That was the the, the A-Show Dynasty Tour. There were secondary markets where it became too expensive to even contemplate uh, putting up the A-Show because of the staging, because of the labor, because of, of all, all of the uh, extra requirements that were necessary for for power and, and lighting and so forth. They would get the B-Show. So that was one way to to modestly reduce the, the cost of, of, of the tour by setting up an A show and a B show. So the tour was leaking money. Uh, it was just a question of, of how much. Yeah, some of the concerts did very well. Others of them were three-quarter houses or two-thirds houses. Uh, the shows where we expected to have a lot of profits by setting up for two or three shows in, in one venue, they went out the window. So now we had a schedule where instead of having four or five shows in one week, we were down to two shows in one week. 
it's impossible to make money uh, on a scale like that if you if you have weeks in your schedule which you're down to two or or three shows. The problem with the personnel was there was a tremendous amount of tension okay, there between between every between and among everyone. There was the Peter problem. Uh, there was the ACE uh, substance abuse and drinking problem. Uh, there was a relationship with Bill Coin, which was starting to become frayed because he had pumped up everybody's expectations, as any manager would, that this was going to be the, the tour of tour and the show of shows, but it turned out to be a debacle in some respects, at least financially. So tensions were, were, were very uh, taut as a result of all of these things uh, coalescing at the same time. And uh, you know, that le- that led to uh, Peter's uh, uh, leaving the band and uh, us ending the tour on a sour note. Which is too bad. Now, uh, I'm going to ask you this from my own personal perspective. On uh, June 9th, 1980, I went down to O'Coin Management at the age of 11, and I interviewed Gene Simmons. And at the time, we were talking about the Unmasked album, and if you listen to the interview, which I've posted on YouTube... He talks about there's going to be a Kiss World, and there's going to be a Kiss World tour, and this whole unmasked thing was going to be massive, and it was going to be a traveling circus or whatever, whatever. Yes. Um, of course, that stuff never happened. Uh, talk to me, first of all, about the impact of that change. When, when the band comes to you and says, or, or Bill O'Coin comes to you and says, listen, we're getting rid of Peter, we are going to have a new guy in there management-wise or business management-wise, you go, ooh, yeah, no, that's the product. Those four faces is the product. Don't change the product. It's like Coke changing the formula. Don't do... Or was it like, okay, yeah, we need to do that. Was it exciting for for, for, for you guys? Or, or was it like, oh, God, this is going to uh, be a disaster? It, it, at that time, for most of us on the inside, it, it seemed inevitable. Uh, Peter was not interested in playing in Kiss. Peter's... Pr- uh, Performance performances had deteriorated noticeably. Uh, he wasn't getting along even with Ace. He had all kinds of personal problems having to do with being, getting divorced from his first wife, Lydia. Peter had his own problems uh, uh, and demons uh, with uh, substance abuse. So it was there was an inevitability to Peter having to go. And Peter agreed. Peter was not discharged or, 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 or thrown out. Uh, there was a separation agreement, and uh, he was uh, given a, a generous uh, package at that time. He would be involved with the, with the group uh, as a financial partner on a limited basis for a period of time, and uh, he he was very cooperative, and that laid the, the that allowed the path to be formed uh, to bring in Eric Carr. So it was it was something that nobody wished to happen but it was also clear that the band could not go forward with peter in it because peter basically didn't didn't want to be in it so you have to create a situation that uh, allowed him to be satisfied not only financially but in terms of his ego uh polygram phonogram uh, in europe gave him a solo album uh, uh, to do uh, 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 later on uh, after he left the group. So he was allowed to, to do at least one or two solo albums, uh, just his name uh, with his Kiss connection. 
And uh, at the same time, Eric Carr was brought in to to continue the touring and recording of Kiss as a Band. And uh, and from the business uh, standpoint, though, of of changing the brand, was that a concern in in terms of, okay, now we're going to have to remarket this? How do we market the new guy? Was there a major Uh, concern? The major uh, challenge was, number one, who is the drummer that comes in to replace Kiss? Does he fit into the, the, the Kiss lineup? Uh, in, in terms of appearance, in terms of uh, performing ability, and in terms of personality, and what kind of costume is he going to have? We never ex- thought of rebranding Kiss. We we thought of it as one member retiring, one character, and that we're, now we're going to introduce an all-new character, and he became known as Eric Carr in this Fox persona. So that was the big challenge. You know, what is this Fox persona? What is he supposed to signify? How does he look? Uh, how do we make him uh, fit into the way Kiss is supposed to be? Uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, 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 Peter's character w- was being retired. Retired. Now- Kiss, that we never thought of like changing Kiss or, or that we would not have makeup or there would not be costumes and characters. It was simply, you know, one of the originals could not go forward. Uh, now he had to be retired. We wanted to do it in a way that would be uh, agreeable to fans and, and not uh, uh, reflect conflict or, or dissension. And I think that was accomplished in the way that Eric was brought in. Oh, it, it really was. And uh, I'll ask you about the July 25th, 1980 show. So the, the show takes place at the Palladium. I actually go to the show. It was another fantastic Kiss show for me. Um, what was that like for you? Because you know the eyes of the music world are, 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 are drawn there and people are going, what's this guy going to be like? In terms of the band and, and management and business management, how important or how pivotal was that show? The Palladium show, I, I did watch in its entirety, which is unusual because very few Kiss shows I could say I watched in their entirety. I've been to almost all of them during my time, but that was the one show I was actually sitting in the audience and I watched the entire show. It was a, it was a, a different experience for me because Kiss was playing in a small theater, the Palladium. They weren't playing in an arena. Uh, I could see the band up close. Uh, and I paid attention to the musicianship much more than I would have uh, had I been one of 15,000 people in, in the middle of a, of a, of a, a hockey arena. Uh, so for me, it was kind of a revelation to, to see how tight the band could, could play and that Eric Carr really made a contribution. I mean, his, his drumming was really much more in sync with the kind of music and the kind of power drumming that you expect from a hard rock band. Peter was a, at his in his heyday was a very capable drummer. Peter was never a rock and rock and roll drummer, uh, and he'll tell you that he was much more influenced by jazz musicians like like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. But he he worked as Peter in in the band Kiss, and his drumming was 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 perfectly uh, uh, satisfactory. Eric Carr was much more uh, of a uh, a, a, a rock and roll drummer who commanded a, a certain presence by the power of, of, of his drumming and his technique. And that made a, a difference in how the band sounded, uh, for sure. Yeah, it, it was it made a huge impact. Now, uh, in that interview I had done with Gene in 1980, when he talks about Kiss World and he talks about all these other things, 
How active was uh, Glickman and Marx and yourself in trying to create all these outside kind of business ventures? Because we hear a lot about stuff that, that they thought of doing and then it never ended up happening. But of course, there's a whole bunch of stuff that does happen. Was it your uh, business to sort of come to them monthly or weekly and say, hey, we got this idea. Hey, we got that. I mean, were you supposed to be pitching them stuff daily, monthly? And how, how did and why did Kiss World, by the way, never happen? Well, Kiss World was something I was uh, intimately involved with. It was Gene's idea, and he wanted to create a kind of amusement park, theme park experience uh, on on premises wherever Kiss did a concert. So you would have the Kiss concert inside, and outside you would have this kind of uh, uh, theme park that was tied into the the Kiss characters and and the Kiss fantasy experience. And I I, I was uh, tied up for months, Developing that, I flew to California, I flew to Florida, I met with people in the circus business uh, who were, at that time, uh, major operators of uh, uh, touring circus productions, and we were trying to come up with an arrangement that would work with with the upcoming KISS Dynasty tour, the the logistics of it, the financing of it, the staffing of it, uh, and it, it became overwhelming. Uh, but uh, the, the problem with Kiss World is that it, 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 there were too many logistical obstacles to making it happen. We had to pull the plug on it shortly before the tour began, because uh, the, the the business issues concerning policing, insurance, logistics, a, a whole separate uh, armada of uh, vehicles and trucks and and and. Uh, personnel to just to to run Kiss World uh, w- would have really been uh, overwhelming, so that's why that was canceled. It, you know, it was kind of a an idea that was years ahead of its time. It, it made a lot of sense in terms of the, the Kiss thinking in back in the late seventies as to where they were and how they thought they would be the next. Uh, a collection of Disney characters, and the Kiss World reflected that thinking. But the business realities of staging something like that and mounting it uh, night after night after night in venues all across the country and doing it safely and 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 securely uh, and in a way that was a high quality experience for the, the fan uh, was was really too daunting to to continue. Yeah, and that and that's the one thing that I think a lot of people don't think about is, yeah, okay, they they create Kiss World and it goes out and and then some fan breaks a leg and then oh, but guess what? Kiss is responsible and 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 that's why you can't do these things. Um, I know we said we do half an hour. We're there now, so if I may, just a couple more questions sure. and, then, and then I'll let you go. But um, the the unmasked tour. So I sit down and I'm going to refer again. I sit down with Gene in June of 1980, and we do this interview, and he talks about this massive unmasked world tour, and they're going to go all over the place, and yet it is the first tour where they don't play North America. Um, what was going on where they just couldn't, were, were promoters just not interested? Was the Dynasty tour left such a bad mouth in, in, in venues' taste that they just went, yeah, not again? Or was it just a business decision to like, hey, let's go explore these new markets and let's focus on the European and Australian markets and we'll come back to North America on the next uh, album cycle? The Dynasty Tour was in 1979 and it did all of North America. I forgot the number of dates, but somewhere between 50 and 100, I'm sure. Uh, in 1980, 
there was really not enough interest at that time to come back in, in, in six months or 12 months and play all those cities again, particularly since the Dynasty Tour uh, had its own problems and many of the dates were not successful. Uh, back to back, year uh, year in, year out, going back to the U.S. market, even for Kiss uh, at that time would, would, would not have been uh, much of a success. And it's true what you said. There was much more of a, an opportunity at that time uh, to go to Europe. The band had not been to Europe uh, since 1976, so 1980 is four years later. And Australia and New Zealand uh, were markets that Kiss had never appeared in, and they were extraordinarily popular. Uh, so it seemed like the perfect opportunity to to devote the second half of the year to touring uh, two mar- two sets of markets where the band was either uh, extraordinarily popular as they were in Australia or where they were starting to become much more popular uh, in Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, I guess I'll, I'll wrap up on this since we've reached our time, but uh, The Elder. Uh, I remember going into a record store with my dad and the elder was on the shelves and I said to my dad, and you have to understand, my dad wanted nothing to do with music. And I convinced, okay. him, I convinced him to buy it for me and we drove home, 40 minute drive or whatever, and I put it on and I just remember that, that utter disappointment. And, and there's no other word, I'm not trying to be a, a jerk about it, but I just, I put it on and I just went, what is this? Um... When you were in in the office there and you hear these demos and you hear the progress and you hear the album, was it like, all right, we've got a great concept, it's a concept record, we'll 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 figure out a way to make a movie out of it and we'll or were were you sitting there going, Wow, how are we gonna sell this? What was sort of your reaction? My my recollection is that I don't remember hearing any of the album before it was actually finished. And I don't think too many people did because they kept it under wraps. Of course, Bill O'Coin heard it. I don't know if Howard Marks uh, uh, heard it, but most of us uh, did not. And I only went to a few of the sessions and you know, whatever I remember from the sessions would have just been snippets of, of, of a song here or there. Uh, the first time we did hear it, we had a listening session uh, at the offices of a coin management, and of course everybody was there. Bill, his staff, Glickman and Mar- Glickman Marx's staff, myself included, and mouths were agape because people really did not know how to react to it. Uh, it's not that musically it, it 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 didn't have its merits, but it was such a departure for Kiss. Uh, nobody really knew uh, how how it would fit into uh, a tour. Or, or even how it would be imaged, because the whole concept of of the elder was there was nothing about Kiss that was either on the front or the back of the album. It was all very much uh, uh, a mystery. Uh, they they were trying to uh, come up with a with a way uh, to advance themselves uh, musically by kind of. Uh, 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 deconstructing everything they had done uh, in the past as a band, so it was it was a real uh, it was a real challenge, and I remember there were there were plans floating around at the time for you know a certain kind of uh, stage presentation and bringing a person on stage who would would play synthesizers to do all the uh, 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 musical uh, parts that uh, the elder embodied, 
but it, it was a real quandary, and uh, those plans were put on hold until the album came out. And of course, when the album came out, there was no interest in, in a tour or, or anything like that. It, it was a it was a, a very special time. Uh, I'll just ask you this: w- Was there in Glickman Marks a branding manager that was just specifically tasked with branding Kiss and branding, you know, pinball machines and all? Was there, or, or was it just the whole office? We're the business managers, and we deal with all of this. Uh, the term that you're using, branding, that was not a term that was used in the 70s or 80s in advertising or marketing to any great extent. I mean, the, 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 that, 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 those are terminologies that people take for granted today, but uh, uh, it, 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 that just wasn't something that was used in the world of entertainment or, or certainly rock music. The idea with the, the the pinball machine that didn't come from Glickman Marks and certainly not myself. I, I uh, c- companies would come to the manager of Kiss, Bill O'Coin, many companies, and probably including Bally at that time, the pinball manufacturer. And these companies w- would typically find whether it was popular movies or occasionally popular musical artists whose image and likeness they could exploit, which was the term that was much more prevalent at that time, how do we exploit this artist by putting it on a product uh, that could be good for the artist or good for the movie or good for the personality as well as good for the company that makes the product? So a lot of things happen by happenstance. There have always been companies that wanted to do tie-ins with uh, entertainment ventures or entertainers, and they typically approach the manager uh, rather than the manager of the band going out and trying to solicit interest because it usually the dynamic usually didn't work that way you had to really be big enough to be of interest to a company and there are companies out there whether they made bubble gum or pinball machines or uh, uh, t-shirts or some other uh, uh, kid product like uh, toys and games or uh, halloween costumes they need new products every year and they need a new line and now they heard about kiss being popular We'll call up the manager. We want uh, Kiss costumes for Halloween. That's how it worked. It was much more freewheeling as opposed to something that was uh, uh, by, by, by design or, or, or by uh, 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 methodology. And you're right, by the way. The, the, we've, we've gone from the term exploitable to branding, which is sort of an interesting semantic. It's the same semantic. thing. <laughs> it, it's the same it's thing, right? It's to say branding. Right, because uh, semantically to say that's exploitable sounds awful, and, and branding sounds kind of cool. Um, yeah. you know, we, it's, we all were, the, it's all in the mind. It really is. I mean, you know, we, we've gone from, you know, bathroom, toilet paper to bathroom tissue. I mean, give me a break. Exactly. <laughs> give me a break. Uh, we've gotten up to the elder era. I will leave it there uh, for now. I would love to do a second part if you're, if you're interested in a month or... i glad to. Feel free to contact me. Well, absolutely. But thank you for this. And of course, uh, folks, Kiss and Cell, the making of a super group, came out back in 1997. It truly, truly is a compelling compelling read uh just fascinating stuff uh chris thank you so much thank you mitch it was my pleasure cheers we'll talk again cheers take care bye-bye now here's paul stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia not even cold gin will kill those germs this is rock talk with mitch lafon